You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on Sunday, December 13th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Uh, it's a joy uh, to be with you this morning. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It is um, always a place to celebrate, to sing together, uh, to just see one another to uh, hear God's Word and to uh, be reminded of God's truth. Um, We are in the midst of our Advent series as we celebrate and remember, just as God's people once were waiting with anticipation for the arrival of Messiah, the arrival of a Savior, and we can now look back on that and celebrate, so we now look and hope with anticipation at His return again to come for His people. Uh, one of my favorite verses announcing the coming of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses, verse 23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is a beautiful and scary declaration. If you don't know who God is or who this God is that's coming to be with you, then these words should strike fear. I'm not the biggest fan in the world of the instant access we have to one another by having phones on us at all times. Uh, And part of the reason is that I have people in my life, and I'm sure you do too, that when you see their name on the phone uh, or you get their their message, you you immediately, your head goes down. Um, When they say, I need to talk to you, uh, you think immediately something has gone wrong. It might be a family member who only calls when there's bad news or a coworker or boss that only calls when something has gone uh, terribly wrong. Um, well, what would, you, what would be your immediate thought if you got a message uh, that said that God is coming to be with you? If you don't know who that God is, and even if you do, you have to start thinking what has gone wrong? What have I done? Something really bad must have happened if God himself needs to come. What do I need to get right before he gets here? But if you know and believe that God is a God of love, that God is a God that desires peace, that God wants his people to have joy eternally, and you have been hoping with anticipation for that God to come, then then that horrifying, scary declaration becomes the best news that you could ever hear. As the angels said to the shepherds, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. As we sang earlier, Jesus took on flesh, it's such a beautiful song, Jesus took on flesh, conquered death, shattered the darkness, and took away our shame. And so we rejoice that God has come into this world because we know that love has come into this world. And so this week, week three of our Advent series, we will talk about uh, the love of Christ. And we will do that by looking at uh, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, maybe one of the most famous passages in the world on the subject of love. And we will look uh, to see and, and hope that that will give us a clear understanding of exactly what it means when Christ came to be with us, when God came into this world, what exactly that means to our lives today. We will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This passage is most well known for its use at weddings. Uh, I've had the privilege to do a number of weddings over the past several years. Um, My wife and I had this read at our wedding, so if you had it read at your wedding, that's okay. Uh, The day of our wedding was um, a complete mess. I, I lost my wallet in the morning and had to rent a car, um, and uh, 20 years ago, that was a, that was a difficult process. Um, and so my wife and I were arguing most of the day uh, about that, and, and everything seemed to be going wrong. And, and as I sat there, and I remember the, the pastor uh, reading those words, love is patient, love is kind, all I was thinking is, dang it, over two. Um, It is certainly appropriate to be read at weddings. It has long been a goal of mine, though, to redeem these beautiful words from from simply filling a spot in a wedding service to truly seeing the impact they have on our understanding of who God is and what he produces in us. Paul's intended purpose isn't just for couples to have something read at their weddings. If you're sitting there and you've got a wedding coming up and you're thinking, I guess I need to find a new passage, please don't. Uh, Have it read. It's beautiful. Uh, It's 
it's so beautiful that many scholars believe that Paul wrote this separately at, at, at another time, and then he decided to insert it here in the letter, that Paul was essentially a Renaissance man before it was cool, and he was trying his hand at poetry and just thought this would fit really well here. But Paul's purpose is much broader and deeper than to show off his, his poetry skills. What God does through Paul is that we are given a roadmap to reconciliation in, in relationships. We are given step-by-step instructions to healing broken marriages. We're given a guide to, to friends and family and to church members on how to continue to love one another even while chaos rages around them. Paul doesn't specifically give this to newly married couples. He doesn't say, I'm going to talk to families right now about love. No, Paul is writing this to the church. He says these things to a church that needed to grow, needed to grow in how they were loving one another. They needed to grow in how they were loving others. He says these things to a group of believers, to a church that division, distrust, and sin were all threatening to tear them apart. For most of us, we get love wrong in many ways. I think we can hopefully admit that. And, and this chapter in Corinthians specifically helps make clear two of the ways that we all get it wrong and helps us see more clearly that we need God in everything that we do, and we especially need it for love. Most of us think that we can do love in some form or fashion without God. Like, we, we're going to love somebody, we're going to care about somebody enough, we're going to be able to do love without God. But the truth is, apart from God, we have no chance of truly loving someone else. The first way we get this wrong that Corinthians points out is by thinking that love is just one of many qualities that God desires from his people. We know that love is important, but, but we often act like love is just one of, of the good things that God wants from us. So if we get it right, we get it right, and if we don't, we don't. We don't see love correctly, that it is very, at the very front, at the very front of what God wants in his people, but it is also woven throughout and necessary for everything else that he wants from his people. There is nothing that God wants us to do that he doesn't want us to do in love. And second, we get love wrong because for each of us, we try to define love for ourselves. We define love as it suits us best. But God has given us a very clear description, a very clear definition of what love is so that we don't have to wonder if we have the right one. For many of us, love is such a big term. We hear the, the, the idea that love would sacrifice themselves for, for a friend, that, that there is no greater love than to lay your life down for a friend. And we understand the big idea of love, but we don't really know how it actually applies to our lives day after day. Our experiences often shape our understanding of love, and I know many of you have been hurt by people that you loved. You've been let down by people that said they loved you. You felt abandoned or left. And while you still want to believe in love as an ideal, when we talk about it, it will bring up a large range of emotions. God, God is love. And what he, when he defines it for us, he is showing us himself. He is showing us that love never fails. I know many of us are familiar with this passage, but my hope today is that we will see, each see beyond these words, beyond these words as poetry or lyrics, and see them as necessary to our daily relationships, necessary to our understanding of who God is and what Christ has done for us. Uh, this passage has a lot of territory to cover, so just settle in. It's going to be a really long sermon. Um, so let's pray and ask God to, to prepare us. Uh, Father, we, we, we thank you and we praise you because you have loved us before any of us loved you. You loved us when we did not love you. Father, you have been for us that perfect, immovable love that each of us longs for. Sin has corrupted our hearts and minds and has corrupted our understanding of love. I know that just talking about it can bring about hurts and disappointments. So I pray this morning that we would see your love and that it would bring healing, it would bring comfort, that your love for us in sending your son into this world will reshape our understanding 
of love. I pray that you would use your word to sanctify us, to lead us to love in the way you intended us to, to lead us to, to, to uh, every single day cherish the love that we have, and that you would help us by your spirit's power to see your love, and that we would walk in, in love in light of what you have done for us. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Uh, the main issue, I believe, with the popular way that this passage has been used is that it never allows for the context that it was written in. If you're in a wedding, you don't want to hear the history of the Corinthians. Uh, you don't want to hear why Paul is writing to these people. Uh, and so it almost always isolates the passage because of the beauty and the power of the words. But to be able to understand this passage rightly, we need to understand who the author of this letter, who Paul was, was writing to, and what was the context? Why was he writing them? Around 150 years before Paul is writing to the Corinthians, Corinth had suffered brutally at the hands of the Romans. It had been invaded and taken over by Rome. The attack left the city burned to the ground. Many were killed, and most of the rest were sold into slavery. It sat in that state for about 100 years until Julius Caesar saw an opportunity an opportunity for economic growth in his empire. Corinth was perfectly situated in a, in a spot between Eastern Asia and Rome, and so it became a major city for trade. And because of that, it grew quickly, and it grew in diversity because of the economic opportunity that that city offered. So you have a city with a difficult history, full of diversity, economic opportunity, and what developed out of this were growing divisions, Growing prejudices, greed, arrogance, a thirst for power, and a strong desire for pleasure, a strong desire to get what I want, a strong passion to say no one's going to tell me that we, that we can't have whatever we want. It saturated this city. Corinth had two temples, one to Aphrodite, one to, to Apollo, and both were temples to show off, to showcase their sexual desires and passions. They dared anyone to tell them that they could not do what they want. The Greeks had developed a phrase to describe self-indulgence. They, they would simply say, live like Corinthians. This led the Corinthians to develop their own corrupt definition of love. They had degraded love into something unrecognizable. If you are uh, familiar with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings... Uh, if you're not, spoiler alert. I don't know if you need a spoiler alert for a 70-year-old book, but if you do, um, it's there. Um, in that book, there's a character named Gollum who was once called Smeagol. And through his own selfishness and selfish desires, his desire and passion for this one ring of power, he becomes a completely different creature. He becomes something else altogether that is completely unrecognizable to the point that he has forgotten his own name. He lives in the shadows, just lusting for this ring. That is what the Corinthians have done to love. They have made it something completely unrecognizable from what it truly is. Paul is looking at a people who has distorted the definition of love to fit their society, to fit their lifestyle, to fit their passions. They have defined love for themselves, and we so often do this same thing today. We often lament our society. We often lament what it is doing to love, how, how our country has attempted to change the definition of love. And in many ways, we, we should, but we often do it very self-righteous. We act as if we are perfectly living out what God's true love is. And the world is just messing it up, but, but we've got it right. But the truth is, Paul's concern here was primarily with the church distorting what love is. And if we're, all, all, if we're honest, we often bend God's love to fit better with our lifestyle. We loosen and tighten our definition of love based on what we want it to do. Paul was writing to a church 2,000 years ago that had distorted love, used God's gifts as a means to gain power. There was division, there was envy, there was pride. And here we are today, and we still distort love to fit our lives. We still deal with division envy, pride, and trying to lift ourselves up to, to feel superior to others. 
These impulses and desires and understanding of love had all made their way into the church and it shaped the church's definition of love. And so Paul, throughout this whole thing, will use the term agape, a term that they wouldn't have been using for love, so that they understand that God's love is something different from what you've been calling it. And so Paul, having lived in this city for many months, he sees the false belief, he sees their sin, he sees how these things are causing division. And so Paul turns his attention to what he will call, at the end of chapter 12, a more excellent way, a much, much better way than what you've set out for yourselves is before us. That better way begins by seeing the preeminence that love must have in our lives. Starting in verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Some commentators think that Paul is talking here of the gift of tongues, Others point out that the Corinthian people believed that angels had their own special way of speaking, their own special language, and so it had to be connected to that. But, but overall, they all agree that Paul is trying to communicate here that if you say all the right things, if you have all the right words, if you have the most eloquence, and people are in awe of how you speak, but if you do this without love, then you are like a loud, annoying, noisy symbol. Both instruments here, the gong and the cymbal, were commonly used in pagan rituals. They had the appearance of worship, but were not used to worship God. So in the same way, your words and your voice, the way you use them, it doesn't matter how good they are. If they are not done in love, if you're not saying them in love, then, then your voice might give the appearance of worship. It might give the appearance of Bible teaching. But if you do it without love, it doesn't matter what you say. When Paul gives us this list, he is very purposeful to give examples that are distinctly Christian gifts, Christian acts. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. He doesn't want, to, he doesn't want you thinking, well, he's, he's talking about those out there. He's talking about those who have messed up love out there, those who, who are saying things out there that are, that are completely against God. If you say and do things that are distinctly Christian, but without love, it doesn't gain you anything. So Paul moves from what we're saying as Christians to what we're thinking and believing as Christians. In verse 2, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, faith enough to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Paul references back a lot in this passage to the teachings of Jesus. We won't talk about them all, but he tells us, if I have the gift of prophecy but don't have love, I am nothing. He is reminding us here of Christ's own words in Matthew chapter 7, where we're told, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform miracles. Didn't we do things that were distinctly in, in, in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This has always been a difficult passage for me. How can we do and say things in the name of Jesus and yet be told that we weren't really doing it for God? Be told that he never knew us. Did we do it in love? Do we do it because God loves us? Do we do it because God has produced in us a love for others? Paul doesn't want to leave any doubt, any wiggle room as to what he is saying here. So he emphasizes the word all. He uses the word all eight times in this passage, but three times specifically here. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, have all faith, if I understand every single aspect of God, which I don't, if, if my knowledge of God and his word exceeds everyone around me, which it doesn't, if I have faith to move mountains, which I haven't seen too many mountains moving, if you had all of it, if you did it without love, then it would mean nothing. The Christian is not consumed with just knowing. The Christian isn't just consumed with having faith just to show off. 
Paul is not talking about people who clearly have a wrong belief system, who clearly have a false theology, a faith that is in something other than God. He is talking to Christians. He is directly referencing, again, the teachings of Jesus when Jesus said in Matthew 17, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. I have the faith that Jesus talked about. How can that not be enough? Paul is not demeaning faith, knowledge, or understanding. In fact, he's, he's lifting them up for us. All of these things are important. But he wants us to see that apart from love, that these just become tools to help you gain power or attention or to build up your pride. That is not why God gave these things. That is not why God sent his son into this world to die, so that you could use the good things he has to gain power for yourself or to become prideful because of them. And if you do not have love, then that's what they will become. Then in verse 3, he discusses what we do, how we act. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I give up my body to be burned, you had to be thinking after the first two, okay, I get it. What I say, what I think, but surely if I do enough good works, if I do the actions to the ultimate extreme of giving my life, giving up everything that I have, the literal translation is if I sell all of my property for food to give it to those who don't have it. Paul is going directly again to the teachings of Jesus so that there's no confusion. Even if you do the actions that Jesus himself taught. Paul says, if you do them without love, you have nothing. This is a difficult truth. This is a difficult thing to hear, but I love the way that Paul does it. I love the way that he actually goes about this. He is not just pointing the finger at a corrupt church. That's what I would do. He is is not just telling them that they are doing it wrong. He very intentionally uses the word I over and over again. He could have said directly, if you Corinthians don't have love, then you're nothing. If you don't have love, then you gain nothing. But he drives his point home while humbly pointing his finger back at himself. He says, if I have all of these gifts, I'm not above this. I need this as much as anybody. If I have all of these things, if you think that I have all of these things, if I do all of these works, but I don't have love, then I am nothing. I gain nothing. Their knowledge by itself had puffed them up. It had led to pride. Their wisdom without love had led to quarrels and rivalry. Their tongues were not being used to build up the rest of the church, to build up and strengthen and proclaim the gospel. Their good works of giving to others was just being used to draw attention to themselves so that others would see them as good. None of it will profit any of us in the smallest way. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 when he says, be careful not to perform your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, don't blow a trumpet to announce it to everyone like the hypocrites do. I tell you, they already have their reward. God's love will lead you to sacrifice, to serve and to give for the sake of others, but not in a way that proclaims your greatness. God's love will lead you to do those things in a way that magnifies his love, that magnifies who he is. We are meant to pursue love in a way that exceeds how we pursue many other things. If we have all of these good Christian things, knowledge, powers, gifts, faith to move mountains, if we do all these good Christian things, sacrifice and give ourselves away, but don't have love, then I am nothing. It may seem harsh, but it just emphasizes the imperative that we must have love as Christians. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Many times, if, if I'm told that I'm not being very loving right now, which I hear sometimes, uh, my reaction isn't, you're right, I should work on that. Um, I tend to get defensive. Um, I tend to defend myself. And so I will say, no, I'm absolutely being loving. 
And then I will lay out for them what that means. I will lay out for them what it means that I'm being loving. We will often defend ourselves by giving our own definition of what love is in the situation. Instead of looking at our hearts to see if God's love has truly taken hold, we just defend all of our actions by redefining love. And Paul knows that. And so Paul now moves to to answer that. He knows that the natural question, the natural line of thinking is to defend ourselves. But the natural question to come after verses like that is going to be, if that's all true, then what is love? If, if without love we're nothing, then, then what is love? And so Paul gives us 16 things that defines God's love for us. And it defines what our love for, uh, for others should look like. He gives us specifics for what this love looks like. I've heard a number of pastors offer the suggestion that in place of the word Love, you put your name in these 16 things and see how well you stack up. Uh, See if the phrase still holds true. More than welcome to try that. I did it for the first few, and after a couple, I was just like, I get the point. I don't measure up. Um, Paul Paul shows what this love is, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Or as the New King James says, and I really like it, love does not parade itself. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love is patient and kind. What he is showing here is God's passive and active responses towards his people and how we should do the same. This patience is directly talking about patience with people, not circumstances. Many of us are very patient with situations, but we have no patience whatsoever with people, especially people who consistently do the wrong thing. People who say the wrong thing, people that make the wrong decisions over and over again. A patience that is produced by by love, by God, many have said that it has a long fuse. This is a patience that is directly talking about how we are with others. This patience doesn't quickly get tired of people. It doesn't quickly say, I just can't take this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I just don't love you anymore. No, this patient suffers long with others, even if they don't deserve it, which is, of course, how God is with us. We see that over and over with us. God is long-suffering with us. We haven't, we haven't come to the point where we just now deserve God's love. We just now do enough good things. He continues to be patient with us. And while patience shows that we don't quickly get angry or cancel people in the church, Kindness shows what we are meant to do actively, to move towards others. The kindness that Paul references here is a very active kindness. It is moving towards others to do good for them. It always has in mind, how can I help someone else? How can I build up others around me? As Christians, we are recipients of God's kindness. Kindness often doesn't have much of a definition in in our day and age. But Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says it this way, but when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. His kindness toward us was not a generic kindness. His kindness toward us was active for our good. When the kindness of God appeared, he saved us. His kindness was not dependent on what we had done. He wasn't kind to us because we had done all the right things, but because he is merciful. So much of the world is is dead set on tearing people down right now. True, God-given kindness is very needed. And so we should look at those around us and we should pursue opportunities. When we hear about opportunities to, 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 to share, to care for others, to love others, we should celebrate the chance to do that. We should get creative about how to be kind to others. We should create opportunities for ourselves to be kind. Paul moves then from what love is to what love is not. He says that love is not arrogant or prideful. We should never look at Christ We can never truly look at the gospel and come out thinking, I'm pretty great. 
You should always be left humbly praising God as those who apart from him would be nothing, but in him we have the fullness of life. We have everything that we need. We have everything for eternal life. We are loved eternally. How we treat others matters. We should be humble towards others. Not making much of ourselves, but making much of God. Love not only leads us to a humble view of ourselves, love also leads us to not envy others. When we are filled with love, we don't look at others and think less of them. But we also don't look at others and immediately think less of ourselves. We don't immediately become envious of what they have, what they do, what they look like. Love allows us to see them rightly. We don't judge each other by all the ways that we would judge each other if we were part of the world. We look through eyes of love that see that we are all in need of a Savior. We are all in need of God's love, and that matters infinitely more than the, the earthly comparisons that we are so prone to make. Love does not act out of that pride. It is not envy, it is not arrogant, and love is not rude. The rudeness that Paul is talking about here is is treating people disrespectfully out of a heart that believes you're better than them. This is a product of that arrogance. If we are disrespectful or demeaning towards other people with our looks, with our words, with our time, we are not loving as God has called us to. We have an opportunity in small acts every day to, to extend love, to extend kindness to others. But we also have the ability to make people feel insignificant each and every day. We have an opportunity every week to welcome people into our church, to make them feel like they are wanted here. But we also have the opportunity to give them a look that says, I don't care if you ever come back. I don't care if you, if you, if you ever come back here. You don't, maybe you don't belong. It's amazing how little things can go that far. We should not be rude. We should do all that we can to extend God's kindness, to act graciously towards others, and ask for God to remove all pride in any actions that would flow out of that pride. His love should produce in us a love for others that sacrifices for the sake of others, that cares deeply about building others up. And so in verse 5, we're told that love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This one is, is a dead stop for me. I don't need to keep going. Just let this one sink in. This is not within our DNA. If you want to know the impossibility of love for me, you can stop right here. If you want to heal or mend a lot of broken relationships, broken marriages, just, just try to do this perfectly. What Paul is saying is that love does not seek its own personal way, its own personal preference to the neglect of what would be good for others. There are times where we will insist on our own way. There are times in parenting that we will insist on our own way. There will be other times, but we never do it because it is our way. We do it because it is the good of the other person. When we mix those things, then we lose God's love. We become more prideful and more insistent on us getting our way, and we don't do it in the way that God has called us to. We always have the the good of the other person in mind. Paul gives us an example of this earlier in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. I will never eat meat again. If it's not for the good of my brother or my sister, then I'll never eat it again. That may seem drastic or extreme. He doesn't mean it that way. He's not trying to exaggerate to make a point. Love is so consumed with the good of others that I won't eat what I want to eat if it would harm my brother, if it would cause my brother to sin. Love is so consumed with the good of others that we put away those things that we hold so tight to. Love seeks its joy and its profit in the good of others. It'd be so easy to, to, to simply say, I'm going to eat what I want to eat. And no one is going to tell me that I can't eat meat. Love seeks 
the good of others. Christ gave his life for us, not so that we can feel justified in insisting on our own way, but that we can now die to ourselves. Our lives are no longer our own, and that is a good thing. We are set free from having to selfishly and with stiff necks insist on our own way. It is so easy and natural to say, I'm going to get my way. I need to get my way. But you don't. You don't. And that should be freeing. What you need is love. What you need is God's love. And you have it in Christ. So let that love break through that determined spirit to get your way. He then says that love is not irritable or easily angered. This one is very personal personal for me. It is the one that I probably feel the most shame about. I've worked very hard at times to be seen as someone who can stay calm in any situation, who has self-control. But the truth is just is that every situation that makes me angry, I just push it down as far as I can, uh, push it down farther and farther. Every conversation that doesn't go the way I want it to, every time I feel disrespected by someone, every time I feel like I, I'm not getting my way. I, I refuse to show it, but it, I would get angry until eventually something small would set me off. Someone would say the wrong thing with the wrong tone at the wrong time, and then all of that anger would just pour out. I would just, I would just become the Incredible Hulk for about five minutes and, and just start saying Hulk smash and, and, uh, and, and be filled with anger. A Christian, someone who knows and trusts in God's love should never be marked by anger. It should never be easily angered. It doesn't mean that you're never angry. It can be right to be angry about sin, about others being hurt or taken advantage of. But I know in those moments when we're talking about this, I can look at myself and I see that I've let anger overtake me. I've let my personal feelings overtake me. I've let my emotions take control of me. When we get angry at every circumstance... It means that we don't trust God. We haven't let his love and his sovereignty take control of our hearts. Loving others means that we should work hard to know what makes us angry and why it makes it angry. It is so easy to be hurt and offended. It's so easy to get mad at things these days. 15 minutes reading the comments on Twitter or Facebook, and I'm ready to yell at everybody. I don't even know any of the people involved in the conversation, but I'm so mad at all of them. But the only ones that are probably going to feel that are my kids, because they're being too loud in the next, next room, and I've got to take out this anger on somebody. I become easily angered. When we are confident in God's love, when we are consistently being reminded of what Christ has done for us, that helps us to see people and situations correctly so that we don't have to take everything personally, even if it is personal, so that we can respond appropriately to the situation and continue to seek the good of the other people involved. Love does not explode in anger every time something goes differently than we want it to. And love is not resentful. There's a lot of different ways to translate uh, this, this word here. Um, I think this, for me, um, and as a church, I think this is in some ways the most important aspect of love, especially during this time of, of distancing um, and, and precautions. Uh, when Paul says love is not resentful, what, what he means is that love does not have uh, this, this growing feeling of, of resentment towards people because of a, a list of wrongs committed. Um, some, some translations says um, love keeps no record of wrongs, uh, but the intention there is that by keeping that record of wrongs, we become resentful towards others so that moving forward, it shades how we see them and how we understand them. Um, it, it, it paints a picture of how we see them. And so if, if, if we do this, then we, we look at those people and we start to judge their intention. We start to judge everything that they do, and we run it through that record of wrongs that we have in our he head. We often think that we now know a person's heart. Um, when we become resentful of someone, um, then, then even if they do good, even if they do something good, we, we put bad intentions on them. They did it selfishly. They did it arrogantly. They did it because they had to. The more distance that I have, the more I'm prone to do this. The more distance I have, the, the more I see this come alive in my life. 
the people that are, that are far away, when I, when I haven't heard from them for a couple of weeks, I start to put bad intentions. They haven't reached out to me. They don't care about me. Um, I start to put things onto them that I shouldn't, I shouldn't do. The more distance creates more of this. I believe I know what's actually going on in their heart when I don't. Um, my wife uh, drove, drives uh, slightly slower than I do on average. Um, uh, I, I have a bit of rage when it comes to the road, and, uh, and, and she is completely okay with people passing her on the road. And it drives me crazy. I just want to say, did you see what they just did? Uh, every single person who passes me on the road is a threat to my pride. Uh, I, I know that if you pass me on the highway, you did it because you think you're better than me. And so... I will then calmly go as fast as I possibly can to pass them, and as I do, I will give them a nice glance, just lingers for just a second, just to make sure that they know, that I know, that they know you're not better than me. Um, that That is who I am. Distance often creates that. We, we start thinking bad things about people. Um, if someone doesn't doesn't respond the way we want them to, if we get a text message that, that isn't all that we want it to be, then we start to think the worst of that person. God's love should lead us to think better about that person and their intentions. When we do not do this, we can become resentful. We assume evil motivations, even if they're not present. This is not a call to be naive. We know that we should, if something is wrong or sinful, still call it out, but we should not be looking and always believing evil or wrong motives when they are not there. We should trust God who knows the heart of people. He knows our heart, and yet he still loves us. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices with the truth. I've heard several pastors say it this way. This is verse 6. Verse 4 is we see that love has the right inward perspective, and verse 5, the right outward perspective, and in verse 6, the right upward perspective These are two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same truth. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices with truth. The Corinthian church was certainly in danger of rejoicing in sin, of celebrating their sin. Love never leads us to enjoy sin because it sees sin as what it is. Love will always allow us to see sin as what it truly is, destructive. Love always allows us to see where sin leads us. It leads us away from God. And if God is love and sin leads us away from God, then we can never celebrate, never rejoice at sin. We should never take any joy in evil in our lives, in sin in our lives, in sin in lives around us or throughout the world. But we rejoice in what is true and good. We rejoice in every act that proclaims the beauty of God. We rejoice in every act that reflects the gospel. We rejoice in every act that seeks to do good to others and care for others and love others and bring good news to those who are hurting or lost. And that gives us the foundation then for verse 7. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. Love can endure whatever situation or circumstance. Love doesn't give out. Love doesn't give up because things aren't going well. Love doesn't quit because the situation is difficult. We can continually, actively, faithfully love one another as the church. Actively love one another in the midst of present difficulties, in the midst of difficult situations. In the midst of disease and pandemics, we can continue to love one another even while things that are happening that would otherwise crush or rip apart our relationships. Love can bear wrongs being done to us. We can endure in the face of ongoing suffering because love believes and hopes all things. We believe that God is in control. We believe that he is a loving God that is in control. And we believe that he will use that love to build his church, to to, to refine people, to make them holy, to bring them to him in glory and to proclaim his glory to all nations. So we never lose hope. We have been loved with a love that never ends. God has loved us with a love that never falters, never fails, never ceases. And because of that, And only because of that can our love endure. 
Here in verse 8, with just three words, Paul now widens the gap infinitely between God's love and any other version of love. He widens the gap infinitely between our understanding of love and what love truly is. If you had any thoughts that this seems similar to what I thought about love, to other versions of love that I've seen, the truth is, as, as humans, we all have a point where love ends. Something that is done, something that is said, and we just say, I don't, I don't love you right now. I don't love anymore. I don't feel love right now. If you were fortunate enough to be a teenager growing up in the greatest decade ever, the 1990s, um, then uh, you would know that the majority of love songs of that decade uh, were really breakup songs. Uh, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, Without You by Mariah Carey, End of the Road by Boys to Men, Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. Um, I've spent a lot of time this week listening to those songs. Um, they are considered some of the greatest love songs of all time, and they are all about relationships ending. Our understanding of love has limits. Our love falters. Our love fails. We, we look at love and say it's nice for a time, but it probably won't go on forever. It is hard for us to understand a love that doesn't end, that doesn't fail, that doesn't falter, because that's our experience. This completely separates God's love from our very best efforts. If you looked at this list, if you looked at the 15 things before this and thought you were doing good, then verse 8 should make it perfectly clear how short we all fall and how desperate we all, all are for a love that doesn't end. How desperate we all are to be able to love and, and how desperate we are for Christ to make that possible for us. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21 puts it this way. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. My hope is because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's not going to cease in the future. It hasn't ceased in the past. And it's not going to cease right now. Romans 8 puts it this way. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. It never ceases. If we stop living for ourselves, we die to ourselves and trust in Christ as our Savior. Will he ever stop loving us? Do you believe that God loves you right now? Do you believe that God will love you for the rest of your life? Do you believe that God will love you for eternity? Do you wonder or ever question if, if there will ever come a moment when he will turn away? Do you question if, if there's... If there's something that you can do to make him say to you, I just don't love you anymore. If there is a future day, however distant, however remote, when God will stop pouring out his love on us, when Christ will cease to love his people, if there's ever a day when God stops loving us, then the gospel is not good news. If there is anything that we can do, if there's anything that can be done to us that would make God stop loving us, then the gospel is not good news. As one pastor put it, eternally good news is really good news. God looks at you forever and says, I love you, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and nothing can ever change that. And the reason that nothing can ever change that is because when God sees you, he sees your life as it is, now hidden in Christ. Your life is not your own. It is hidden in Jesus. And nothing can ever diminish his love for his son. What could you ever do to shake or diminish in any way the love that God has for his son? What sin could you commit? What thought could you have that would make God love his son less? What could ever happen to you from someone else that, that would make God love Jesus less? 
God's steadfast, immovable passion that love never ceases. The love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father is love perfected. And because of that, we are loved eternally. Nothing can ever take that away from those who trust and believe in God, who trust and believe in what God has done for us, who trust and believe in that love. And God's perfect, unshakable love for us must produce in us a love that is not ours to define. God's perfect, unshakable love must produce in us a a love that is his completely. When it doesn't, we repent and ask forgiveness, and then we pursue love because God sent his son into this world, and when he did, love came down and pursued us. If you have never trusted in Christ, I encourage you to know that he has loved you perfectly and will continue to love you perfectly into eternity if you will only turn and surrender your life to him. You can stop with your best efforts. You can stop desperately trying to get people to love you, and you can turn to Christ and know that nothing can ever separate you from that love. And for the church today, let let that eternal unshakable love, build our confidence in him and let his love shape our hearts, shape our minds, shape our definitions of love, shape how we act towards others, shape our actions so that the world will see the love of God. Let it shape how we love one another so that the world will see the love of God and see their need for it. Let's pray. Father, we are so needy in every aspect of our life. We need something greater than us, even in the way that we love. We desperately need you. Father, we thank you that you have loved us so perfectly. We thank you that you sent your son into this world and he did what he did in love. And because of that, we now have life. Because of that, we can know what life truly is and we can know what love truly is. So we thank you and we praise you. We thank you and you praise you that you continue that love, that you promise that you will love us forever. We thank you that we can find hope in that, that we can find peace in that, that we can find joy in that. Father, remind us of your love today and remind us every day. Let us seek you in your word. Let us seek you as we talk to others. To seek you as in, in prayer so that we would consistently, every day, be reminded of your love and let that radically shape and transform our lives so that we can, we can sacrifice and, and live for the sake of others, so that we can give all that we have to your glory, so that we can do all that we have all that we do to your glory. Father, we, th- we thank you and praise you. Remind us of that today. Remind us of that tomorrow. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on Sunday, December thirteenth, two 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.